Father, I pray that you give us clarity today as we talk about our victorious Savior, this series on unmasking Satan. Lord Jesus, I pray that you not only will protect us, but give us your insight, give us hope, give us strength, give us focus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I began this series last week. It was Father's Day, and uh, uh, when I told my wife what the series was and what I was going to talk about on Father's Day, she kind of gave me one of those looks. And after 46 years, we know what looks or what. She gave me this, have you lost your mind look uh, last week. But um, (laughs) as I said last week, I began the, the series on Satan not to suggest that fathers were pictures of the devil and um, <laughs> portraits of that. No, I, I fully realized what I, what I was doing, and I, I, I typically try to uh, speak to the occasion. But as I mentioned last week, uh, the leading of the Spirit of God, I, I felt like I needed to do the series now for some reason as I prayed about it. Uh, secondly, I didn't want to break the series up. Karen and I have some vacation time coming in a few weeks, and I didn't want to chop it up because it's too important. It needs to be presented as a whole. And, uh, and so we're, we're doing this. And occasionally, I think every once in a while in the life of a church and individuals, we need to go back and revisit the nature of our enemy and understand who he is and what, he, what he's trying to do to us. This is not a series necessarily on spiritual warfare. I suppose I could talk for three, four months on the whole uh, ins and out of spiritual warfare, but this is a series on unmasking Satan. Three messages uh, that speak, speak about who he is, our victory in Christ, and how to win the battles. We began last week by talking about um, a scouting report on the devil, just who is he? And a lot of us as Christians, we have some kind of crazy conclusions about who, who the devil is. But the Bible's not, not silent about it, very clear about who our enemy is. Uh, he, he was the anointed cherub that covers it, according to Ezekiel chapter 28, which means most scholars believe, and I agree, that he had access to the very presence of God. Now, it's one of the grand mysteries of all time in our theology as to the origin of evil. How there was no evil in heaven, how did pride well up in him? We don't know, but we do know that it did visit him, and that's the reason why he was thrown out of heaven. Made the observation last week that Satan's strategy is very clear. Some of us think that all the devil wants to do is disrupt our families and mess with us and cause us to do little dirty, nasty things and naughty stuff, that kind of thing. But the overarching strategy of Satan is much bigger than, than we uh, 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 want to give him credit for. According to Isaiah chapter 14, his strategy is, get this, get this, he wants to replace God. You have to understand that. That the enemy's strategy is to replace God. Now, I made an observation last week, and I think it's important for me to go over this. I don't review usually this much, but I made the observation last week to to avoid the two extremes whenever you talk about all things demon and devil and evil and mystical. We've got to avoid these two extremes. But I find that as Christians, we don't do tension well. We don't do balance well. We typically go to one extreme or the other. One extreme is to ignore him, minimize him, uh, put him in 
into a little box and category and just sort of like not deal with him and blame all the problems that we have in life on either some of the things that happened to us in our background or, you know, imbalances in our chemicals or, or season of life stuff that we're going through changes or, or this or that or that or this. And we minimize him, and that's a huge mistake. That's a big mistake. That's a big mistake. The other extreme, which is equally wrong, and I find, unfortunately, a lot of Christians, when they start studying the dark side of the devil, they start studying demonology, they start studying these things, there is sort of like this, uh, sort of this backhanded way of worshiping him. In other words, we get so obsessed with these things. We get so obsessed with what demons can do and what this can take place. And before you know it, we start blaming the devil for everything. We find a demon behind all kinds of stuff. And as I mentioned last week, no, no, the devil's not behind everything that's wrong in our lives. Paul calls it the flesh. Lying is a part of the flesh. Poor devil ain't had nothing to do with the lie you told. You just told it because we're fallen. Lust is a part of the flesh. That's not a demon. That's just part of the flesh. That's part of who we are. Anger, that's part of who we are. And so we have to hold in tension these things. You, you follow what I'm saying, trying to say here? You have to hold these things in tension and deal with the devil the way the Bible clearly deals with him, but don't add in between the lines. That's what happens to us. We'll take an implication and make it something that it's not supposed to be. And so we deal with Satan the way the Bible prescribes that we deal with him. I mentioned last week that there are 16 names of the devil that fall into two categories. The first, uh, uh, yeah, the first seven names uh, speak of the fact that Satan is a personification of evil. That's who he is. He's the personification of evil. Uh, The next nine names speak of Satan in terms of what he's doing. He is relentlessly going after us. He is the relentless, aggressive, aggressive opponent of righteousness. And I think if there's one key word to understand Satan, it's the word deception. Deception, and I would put it in parentheses, distortion. He deceives us and distorts the truth. Distorts the truth. Now today, what I want to talk about, before we get into next week, this whole idea of winning, winning the battles over the enemy, we so quickly want to jump to that. I find that uh, we skip over the, the major emphasis of the New Testament when it comes to engaging or dealing with the devil. The major emphasis of the New Testament, by the way, when we talk about all things demons and we talk about all things devil, the major emphasis is the victory of Christ. The victory of Christ. You, you, you don't find Paul speaking of the devil and demons apart from the context of the victory that belongs to our Savior. And that's what I want us to see as followers of Jesus Christ. I don't want us to, to, to one-off this thing and separate or segment spiritual struggle from the victory that's already been given to us. In fact, that's the overarching thought that I want to share with you today is that the foundation and source of our victory over Satan is our victorious Savior. And in fact, I want to put this up on the screen here because this summarizes everything I want to say today. And that is that the war has already been won. 
The war has already been won, and Jesus stands with us to grant us victory in every battle we face. We do not have to be defeated by Satan. The war's been won. I'm not neutralizing the devil. He's still fighting us, and there are battles but the war has been won. The book ends with the devil having been thrown in the lake of fire. God declares what he's going to do to him, and all these other events declares his victory over him. Now there's real struggle and there's real battle. There's some guerrilla warfare that's going on, and he's coming after us hot and heavy, and I would say even more so as the time comes near for the return of our Savior. Now, what do we think in terms of victory? As I was preparing this message, my mind went back to that incredible, great foundational hymn by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You know, sometimes we sing these great hymns without marinating into the very words and theology around these hymns. This is an amazing hymn. This hymn actually is is Martin Luther's uh, uh, testimony to the power of our great Savior and the victory that's been won over the enemy. Listen to these words. I want to read the entire song to you, the entire hymn. Luther writes, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power great and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, this body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. What an awesome God we have, and I want us to be thinking about that today as we go through this. I want to sail the greatness and victory that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want us to leave this place thinking about the greatness of our Savior. I want us to leave this place not mired in discouragement and depression and wondering whether or not he can come through for me, but I want to see him for who he really is. And I want to present this message in such a way that it's not just motivational speak or inspirational language or untethered things that are just nice, fluffy, sincere statements, but founded deeply in the work of our Savior. My, my struggle in my study this week was an interesting struggle. It was what not to say today. For the Bible is replete with the victory of our Savior. You can go almost any place and see his glorious conquering uh, 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 victory over the enemy. It's all over the place. But what I decided to do is to point to three events in which Jesus demonstrated his victory over Satan. Three critical events. One has to do uh, in the wilderness Secondly, before demons, and thirdly, at the resurrection. In the wilderness, before demons, and at the resurrection. 
The first event is in the wilderness. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. This is the inauguration of our Lord's earthly ministry. He is 30 years old now, and for the next three, three and a half years, uh, he's going to declare his mission. But I think it's very interesting that the very first thing that takes place in the inauguration of his ministry is that the Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And as you walk through this, you find that Satan poses three temptations to Jesus here in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Let's pick it up in verse 1. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. By the way, who led him into the wilderness? The Spirit led him into the wilderness. A little aside, I said, if you weren't here last week, I said last week this thing. Now listen to me on this. There's some crazy teaching about demons and about the devil, okay? Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Listen to me. The Bible clearly teaches that the devil cannot do anything to us that God doesn't give him permission to do. I didn't say, don't hear me, wake up. If somebody's sleeping next to you, do like this right now, okay? I did not say, I did not say that God sends evil. I didn't say that. What I said was that the devil cannot do anything to you that, he does, that God doesn't allow to happen. And this is the case right here. God allowed his son to be tempted of the enemy. Well, there's three of these temptations. So he's led, in the spirit, led by the spirit into the wilderness. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And here's the first temptation. The first temptation is this. To act independently of the Father. That was the first temptation that Satan presented to Jesus. It says in verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan comes to our Savior and he says, and Jesus is hungry. Remember, he was 100% God, but also 100% man. He's out there in the wilderness and Satan says, okay, that's fine. Okay, if you're really the son of God, if that's who you really, really are, why don't you just go ahead and turn these stones to bread? You can do this. Just go do it. Go do it. You see, but Jesus knew that it it was the Father's will for him to be hungry in the desert with no food. That was the Father's will. And Jesus was not going to allow his desires to break the will of the Father. And the enemy comes and says, I, I, you, you can do this. So act independently of God. You're, you're, you're God. But what does Jesus do? How does he answer him? Well, Jesus answers Satan by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. And he says here, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of, the, of, of God. What he's saying in essence is simply this. I'm here doing my father's will. This is what God wants me to do. And it's more important for me to do the will of the father than for me to have my physical need met. No, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to draw some applications at the end. The second temptation 
the devil comes to him down here in verses five through seven, and this second temptation, he tested him to, to see if he would display his power and position apart from the will of God. Look what he, what he says in verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Now he starts quoting the scriptures, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus responds in verse 7, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. A couple of quick observations here. Satan once again wanted Jesus to cave in and do what the people were expecting him to do. If you're, you're the son of God, uh, you can display your power and position, just go do it. You do it. Jump off this thing. Do it. Well, Jesus answers him by quoting once again from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6. Now, you might miss something here. I don't want to get too granular here, but when Jesus says to him, <laughs> you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, he, that's a subtle reference to his own deity. Yeah, I am God. That's exactly right. I, you, 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 you nailed that. I'm God. But I'm not going to do this. So he comes in the third time. The third temptation that he gives to Jesus is to deliver the kingdoms of the world to Satan in exchange for his worship. That Satan would deliver the kingdoms of the world to Jesus in exchange for his worship. Um, verse 8 says, And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now you say, how could Satan do that? Well, remember last week, if you were here last week, I underscored the fact that Satan is in control of the world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He is behind the, the world system. He's behind world views. He's behind the philosophies of the world. And for those who do not acknowledge God, he's behind the politics of the world. Demonic activity is happening in very sophisticated places. And so when he says, look, I'll give you the kingdom, he wasn't blowing smoke at that point. Yeah, I'll give this to you. I'll give you the world. Well, how does Jesus respond to him? And by the way, he says, if you worship me, again, remember I said it is the goal of Satan to replace God. This was part of his strategy. Can you imagine the audacity? The sheer, what is it? Let's see, this expression, huxba? Hey, he's talking to the second person in the Trinity, the everlasting Son of God. And he says, look, you bow down and worship me. <laughs> Unbelievable. What an idiot. What an idiot. So Jesus responds, okay, let's bottom line this thing. I, I love the way Jesus responds here. He says, uh, uh, 
verse 10 says, then Jesus said to him, three words, be gone, Satan. Are you serious? Hit the pavement, man. Get the stepping. Be gone. The, the living word responds this time. Go. I know who I am. I'm God. You, you're not going to give me anything. In fact, by the end of the game, you're going to be destroyed. Be gone. And then, by the way, while Satan was hustling out or so, Jesus says, let me, let me give you another line from the scriptures. He says, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus, once again, quotes the scripture, closing the deal with the devil, at least for that time, and the scripture says that he left for a season. I'm going to talk about that next week when we talk about winning the battle. How that there are evil times, there are evil seasons in our lives. There are times of spiritual attack in all of our lives. We've all been, been there if you've been a believer for any length of time. Well, let me give you some lessons here. Lesson number one, as you go through this and you watch how Satan, how Jesus dealt with Satan, the attacks, the temptation, the stuff that he threw at him, the very first thing you're, you're, you're drawn to is the power of truth. The power of truth, the power of the word of God. If our Savior submitted to the Word of God, if our Savior, Jesus, used the Word of God to put Satan in his place, how much more ought we to use God's truth and God's Word? Now, I know I'm beating a, a drum here at this church. I've been saying this all these years that I've been here. But once again, I, you know, some of us get beaten up by the de devil because we're willfully ignorant. We don't know truth, and I don't mean to be lecturing or condescending or to be, you know, fussing at anybody this morning, but it is true. The, 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 the devil flees from truth. It is a power of this word. Listen to me. When you quote the word of God to the enemy, you're using the very voice of God. When he comes after you and you start quoting what God said, it's not you saying it. God is speaking. So there's the power of truth. And second lesson is what he used to defeat Satan. It wasn't strategies, wasn't ideas. Frankly, it wasn't even his prayer group. But once again, he used truth. And his example teaches us time and again that we've got to know and use this book. You know, Satan cannot be successful without deception. He can't. He can't be successful in your life or my life without deception. He absolutely can't do it. God's truth, you know, just weakens and reveals and unravels Satan's schemes. But the devil comes to us like, the, you know, these mirrors you see at state fairs and carnivals. They, you know, stand there and this distorted stuff, you know. I tell Karen, the mirrors at the house distort my image. She said, no, no. Um, well, that's how the enemy comes to us, doesn't he? Well, the second event that puts the spotlight on our Savior's victory over demons and the devil is found in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39 
um, there are many encounters that Jesus had with demons, and I started to go down that path and list a number of them, but I want to focus on this one here because I think there's some incredible learnings that take place. What is happening here is that uh, Jesus had just performed this incredible miracle uh, on the Sea of Galilee. His disciples were in the boat, and you know, this storm comes out of nowhere, and there's upheaval all over the place, and, and Jesus calms the storm. And when he calms the storm, the disciples are more afraid of the miracle that just happened than the storm that they went through. Because <laughs> they say here in the last part of verse 20, uh, was it verse 25, he says, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? There's a little backstory here. Jesus is doing all these things to build confidence in his disciples that he is Lord. Nothing can stand before him. Thus, they go over to the Sea of Galilee. And if uh, those of you, uh, uh, many of us uh, have been to Israel here, and I hope a bunch of you will go with us next May as we go there. You'll see this whole thing here on the Sea of Galilee. On the eastern shore is where this miracle takes place. It's the region of the Gersenes. And as they cross over there, uh, they encounter this man who is demonized, or he's filled with demons. Uh, the Mark account gives us a little more detail about what was going on. He was in chains, and homeboy was living out in the tombs, the cemetery, and the graveyards, and everybody was scared to death of him because he had these enormous powers and stuff, and, uh, and they, they just want to stay away from him. He had petrified everyone. But something very interesting takes place when he encounters Jesus. <laughs> he encounters Jesus. Now listen to what he says here in verse 28. But when he, the man possessed with all these demons, saw Jesus, listen, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high? I beg you, do not torment me. Don't, don't miss this. Uh, a couple of things you need, to, you need to know. As you study Jesus and, uh, and demons who ever are around Jesus, they always, they always, not only are they, they acknowledge his presence, but they cannot stay in his presence. Hear me on this, hear me on this, hear me on this. Hear me on this. The demons could not stay in his presence. They're frightened of him. They know who he is. In fact, the line, verse 28, says, do not, uh, uh, the line in verse 28 that says, Jesus, son of the most high God. Yeah, you got that right. You got that right. I, I am the son of the most high God. And not only that, the line again in the last part of verse 28, it says, do not torment me. Demons know that Jesus is their ultimate judge. Oh, the first time he came, he's a, he's a lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. The next time he comes on a white horse, down one side he's going to say, Lord of lords and King of kings. They know this. 
says, don't torment me. Well, the demon recognized that Jesus had control over him, even though men could not control him. It's not only that he says, I've met my match. I can't stand in your presence. Too many Christians focus on the wrong thing in spiritual warfare, as I said early on. We have to focus on our conquering king. If Jesus is there and we're living in communion with him, our enemies cannot stand it. And by the way, he had a legion of demons, according to verse 30. You know what a legion is? A legion is a group of about 6,000 Roman soldiers. I don't know if, 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 if Luke is using a little bit of hyperbole and explaining this or whatever, but, but the point being this, homeboy had a lot of demons in him. He was filled, filled with demons. So when Jesus shows up, everybody's getting scared now. The man is afraid who's filled with the demons. Actually, the demons are scared. So the demons know they got to come at him because they can't, if Jesus is hanging around, we can't hang around. So they got to come at him. You know, um, I, I, I love, I love swine. <laughs> Ribs. <laughs> pork loin. Ham. I mean, I just, you know, I read this text, and I just say, man, this is a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, Jack. <laughs> it's like, this poor little, it's these farmers down there saying, what happened to my pigs, bro? You know? So they were convenient, and the demons jump into the pigs. They go over the cliff, and they're down there. Well, listen to the effect of all of this. Verse 34 says, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told, told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demon had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Ah, uh, this can't be the dude. This can't be him. I mean, this is a guy who was in chains in the cemetery among the tombs, wreaking havoc, naked. And here he is, clothed, worshiping Jesus, lucid, in his right mind. Boy, our conquering Savior. Well, as the story is told, the people, they don't know what to do. In verse 37, then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The fear here is, oh, yeah, it, I, I, I take this, yeah, it's a literal fear, but I'm connecting this with the fear in the previous section, the miracle that Jesus did on the Sea of Galilee and the disciples were afraid. And this fear here, Wherever Jesus shows up, there's worship and awe and this wonder, this wonder. 
There are some lessons that I want to extract from this. The first lesson is this, and that is the power of his presence. The absolute power of his presence. I want you to, one of the problems that we have here is, and, and you know, guys like me have not helped you. Um, in our desire to help one another to understand our, our growth in Christ and our walk with him and how we overcome things, how we apply truth, and it's so wonderful that we do these things. I don't think we talk enough about who is living inside of us. I think that feeds sort of a cultural Christianity. Do you know, do you know, do you know if we have trusted Christ as Savior and Lord? Do you know what we did? Do you know what actually happened to us? Literally, not figuratively, literally, not figuratively, literally, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ himself, lives in us. Literally. That presence is not one-off. He doesn't intercept us when we come to church in small group. But he is always there. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He, the second person of the Godhead. He, the second person of the Godhead. He, with all the attributes of God, is inside of us. He is inside of us. And he, Jesus, is the one who defeats Satan. He, Jesus, is the one who defeats the demons that come after us. He, Jesus, is the one who has the authority. And we're delivered by his presence. Listen, 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 listen. I, uh, we have scared too many people. When we talk about demonology and, and Satan, it's kind of, we, we get spooky and scare folks here. The, the, the deal is, it is not what evil or Satan can do to us. It is what our Savior can do to him. And again, I don't, I don't mean to be trivial here. I don't mean to, to reduce in any way. He is, he is a, he's a powerful fallen angel, the highest of all the archangels. Got it. And Christians need to be very careful. If you're not walking in fellowship with God and communion with God, don't be going up there talking about I command you. You don't command anything. I got that. But if we're living in fellowship and harmony with the Lord Jesus Christ, we're walking by him, we're filled with his spirit, we don't need to be afraid of what he can do. For he's not coming up against us, he's coming up against our Savior. Hallelujah. And then the third event is this. First sin, the wilderness. Before demons, and now at his resurrection. (laughs) Jesus dealt a deadly blow to the enemy. And this is what Paul is referring to in that great text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He has spent the entire chapter talking about the resurrection of our Savior and our resurrection and what he's done on our behalf. And sometimes I think, you know, forgive my little bunny trail here, but sometimes I think we traffic in these truths here and we speak of them in sort of esoteric, intellectual ways as if they're good discussion stuff for our Bible studies and we interact with that. These things are meant to be experienced. Did you know that? 
I'm going to connect a dot here. Hopefully I will when it comes to the resurrection. But listen to what Paul says. I want to pick it up in verse 54. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Here's the line, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what Paul is doing here? You see what he's doing? Paul, in essence, is taunting death and Satan. That's what he's doing. He's taunting them. He's taunting death and Satan. What what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Uh, yeah, actually, he's quoting, he's putting two passages together. He's quoting Isaiah 58 verse, uh, 55, verse 8, and then uh, Hosea 13, verse 14. And he's put these things together. In essence, I think the, the backdrop of all of this is that the apparent victories, and I put quotes around apparent, the apparent victories of Satan in the Garden of Gethsemane, you, you, you know, when they, they came to get him, the devil in his demented way of thinking, And again, I remind you, don't give the devil too much credit. Uh, I said this last week, the devil does not have the attributes of God. Powerful angel, but an angel nonetheless. The devil is not omnipresent. The devil is not omniscient. The devil is not omnipotent. These are attributes that belong to God. And too many of us, there's some bad theology, even in some of our modern gospel songs and other stuff that I hear people saying all the time, oh, the devil knows your future. No, he doesn't know your future. He's smart as all get out and probably a good predictor of stuff, but he doesn't know that. So in Gethsemane, he, I got him. I got him. But he was playing into the hands of the heavenly plan. So the apparent victory of Satan in the garden was reversed on the cross and vindicated in the resurrection. That's what the apostle Paul is saying. Peter put it this way in Acts chapter 2 verse 24 when he preached that great message on the day of Pentecost, which is another story, by the way. Where did they get this boldness from? They got it from the resurrected Christ. And listen to what Peter says. He says, quote, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love that line. (laughs) Wasn't possible. Jesus, the resurrection is the final statement, at least in our human history, of his victory over the devil. Now, by the way, this victory is not a one-off victory. This victory also belongs to us. Here's a few applications. One is the power of the resurrection itself. Jesus says forever, I am king of kings, I'm lord of lords. No one has ever risen from the dead. I'm the son of God. I'm declared to be victorious. I'm victorious over Satan in the grave. What he did defeated Satan. Finally, the sins of the world have been paid for. Not only that, my power is made available to all. And he has declared our conquering king through his resurrection. And he is our hope and our confidence 
through his resurrection. Well, here's where it all comes together. The Apostle Paul speaking personally of the resurrection, that it's not just a celebratory thing that Jesus did, although that's enough. We don't just give Jesus a standing O, though that's enough. But that resurrection power is shared with us. Remember, the second person of the Godhead lives inside of us. And so when Paul was talking about the resurrection back over in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, he put it all together when he said, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And the newness of life there is not just our conversion, but is the ongoing demonstration of the power of God in and through our lives. We do not have to be defeated. That victory is not just past. It's not just outside of us. It is in us. And we fight from victory. And not from defeat. Oh, and I'm going to talk about this next week. And I, I know, I get it. I've been under satanic attack. And I know what it means to be hounded by demons. And I know what it means to fight and to struggle. I get it. I get it. I know what it means. But don't let the devil tell you that you're without resources. Don't let him get you feeling as if you're hopeless. For even in your tears, that resurrection power shows itself operative. About a year ago, I was going through something, some dark, dark, dark moments. There were times when some tears were trickling down my cheeks. You ask yourself, how much more can you take? And I remember saying that one time as I'm driving along, thinking about all this stuff that was swirling around, how much more can you take? And the Holy Spirit said to me, as much as Jesus can handle. That's what you can take, as much as Jesus can handle. For it is not you who lives, it's the victorious Christ that lives in and through us. And somebody needs to hear that today. It's not what you can take, it's what Jesus can handle. And he is our victorious king. And I know some of you are going through some hard times here. You got kids who have made some harebrained, stupid decisions, and some of them are prodigals, and they, you know, you, you got stuff going on. I understand that. I don't speak from some ivory tower. I, I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. But I know that you got a conquering savior too. One more step, and he's with you. I'm go- well, thank you. <laughs> Praise him. I'm going to ask the, uh, the worship team to come back up, and we're going to end this morning by singing that, that great song by the Gettys, that great modern-day hymn, In Christ Alone. And as they come, I, I want to quote just the, the third verse. We're going to sing the whole thing, but just the third verse says, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Let's sing this song and celebrate to the Savior. We don't stand in our own strength and we don't stand in our own power. 
we stand in the power of our Savior. He is with us. He won't leave us. There's nothing for us to be afraid of. We can trust him. He's with us every moment, every second of every day. Perhaps some of you are here today and uh, you're struggling. Maybe you're feeling the heat of the battle and you just need someone to pray with you. At the end of the service, there'll be some of our staff members and Stephen ministers here and elders who are in this service would love to pray with you and seek the Lord with you. But let's walk in victory and let's stay close to our Savior. He wants to do great things in and through us. Holy Father, in the name of your Son, we pray that you will smile on us. God, open our eyes, open our minds. Help us to see as a servant of Elisha had to see as he was intimidated by the forces in the army of Syria. Then Elisha said, buddy, just open your eyes. Who's with us is greater than those who are coming against us. Thank you, O God, for the victory that we have in Jesus. Dismiss us from this place. Help us to walk in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.